Welcome to Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators with Jordan Donnell. This is a safe place to learn about women's health and sexual wellness. I'm your host, Jordan Donnell, physician assistant, women's sexual health educator, and intimacy coach. Today we are joined with Courtney Brame. He is the founder and podcast host of Something Positive for Positive People. He joins us today to share his story on testing positive, talk about the stigma behind STIs, and we even dive into disclosing your STI status. Be ready to laugh and learn more about life after testing positive. This is the 10th and final episode in our series of Infections of the Genital Tract. Annual women's exams can be stressful and overwhelming for many patients. I have compiled my top tips for preparing for your well women's exam, including what to ask for when it comes to comprehensive STI testing. To get your copy of my top tips, go to tips.vaginasvulvasandvibrators.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. Welcome, Courtney. I am so excited to have you here as my guest today. He is the founder and executive director of Something Positive for Positive People. He is on a mission to help people struggling with STI stigma and to receive mental health care services. He is also the producer and podcast host of Something Positive for Positive People. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. It is pretty amazing. I recently found Courtney through social media when I was doing some research for my podcast and I came across him and we just hit it off and I am so excited to be able to share this episode with you guys today. So Courtney, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yes, I can. So my name is Courtney Brame. I am the founder and now executive director and podcast host of Something Positive for Positive People. This is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we're tax exempt. So we can also accept donations. And if you donate, we can send you a letter saying that you donated so that you can write off your donation on your taxes. That's what I've gathered that it means. It probably means something else, but these are the most relevant things to anyone who is involved with the nonprofit organization. So uh, what we do is we provide mental health services for people who've experienced a sexual trauma. And that is the most broad I can make that statement, but more specifically, I'm paying for people who have HSV and are struggling with the stigma to receive therapy, basically. And what's interesting is like the therapy doesn't really touch on the HSV much. I don't want people to get the impression that you're getting therapy for herpes. No, you have herpes. There's something underneath that that has to be worked with that perhaps there are patterns for um, just repeated behaviors and that's what's being talked through in therapy that's what's being healed so my goal i tell people like i have no intention of ending or eradicating or destroying dismantling the stigma my goal is to give people options so that they can choose the way to navigate the stigma in a way of their own choosing so whatever really sits well with the individual whether it be publicly disclosing and sharing their story, coming on to the Something Positive for Positive People podcast and sharing their experience, uh, leading a support group, reaching out for support, or even just disclosing the partners confidently or sharing their experience with the people around them or 
even just being able to be allies without having to necessarily disclose their positive status. I want people to see all of these different options for themselves as they navigate the stigma on their own. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about the stigma of STDs with you today. So tell me a little bit about like your story with HSV or genital herpes. Yeah, so um, about eight years ago, it's been a little over eight years now, I was diagnosed with genital HSV2, which is the herpes simplex virus. This is the virus that causes herpes outbreaks. Now, HSV2 is primarily genital herpes. You can have it orally. HSV1 is primarily oral herpes. You can have this genitally, but um, my case was type 2 genital. And after I was diagnosed, I was living with my grandmother. I just finished college. I got my full-time job. I thought I was about to be out here, y'all, like for real. And then I get this diagnosis. (laughs) So uh, I wake up, I've got body aches, fever, chills. I go to the restroom and I touch my penis while I'm peeing. And I look down, it's like, oh, that didn't feel right. I look down and it looks like only what I know to describe as what the surface of a comet looks like. So you've probably seen movies or cartoons where a meteor is about to hit Earth or a comet, and the surface is exactly what it felt and kind of looked like. There were these raised bumps, this lesion, these abrasions along the upper right-hand side of my penis, just below the head. Um, and it was about the size of a fingerprint. Like if you were to just like put your fingerprint on something, it was about that shape and size. So uh, I yell and I was like, oh my God, it was worse than that. And my grandmother, who's a nurse, she came to the door. She's like, what's wrong? I just told her, I was like, we need, I need to go to the doctor right now. So my mom happened to be over. She drove me to an urgent care and just cutting straight through all the crap. The doctor gave me a vis- visual diagnosis and then um, did a test. And later it was confirmed that it was herpes, which type it was, but he did say, yep, looks like herpes gave me some information, sent me on my way. The first thing I did when I got back home was I began to reach out to my partners because I was more so struggling with embarrassment. I didn't want to be known as a dude who gave other people herpes. So I reached out to the last three people I've had sex with and asked, I just asked, hey, do you have herpes? All of them said no. And I just left it at that. And so there was a sense of relief that was like, thank God I didn't give this to anybody else because that would suck. So um, after that, I think that was when I started to really look at and research how to, well, because I learned that this was an outbreak. I thought I was going to always have my genitals look and feel like this every day moving forward. And then when I learned about outbreaks and I learned that these were things that could be managed or treated then I was more okay with it. So I was just like, oh, okay. So all I need to do is work out. I need to work on my nutrition. And I have to, more than anything, which I think is the biggest piece of it, manage my stress. This in particular in itself is a stressful event. So it's important how you decide to navigate it moving forward, whether it be uh, reading up on it, seeking out support, finding resources that can help you with uh, the, the mental and emotional pieces of this, understanding the holistic approach to disclosure. Um, because one of the bigger things here is how we navigate relationships. 
And when we start to date, when we start to become sexually active or wanting to become sexual active, we can start to put all these narratives in our head about what it's going to look like or the fact that it won't even happen at all. So being able to get your mind right is probably the first thing that needs to happen in regards to dealing with uh, an HSV diagnosis. Now, that's my story up until this point. Do you have questions? Because I'll keep talking, Jordan, if you let me. Well, I wanted to know, like, when you got this diagnosis, were you in a relationship? Were you single? What was your status? Um, I was in between relationships. So I was seeing someone that I was consistently on and off with. Uh, I had this thing against cheating. So what I would do was break up with someone if I wanted to hook up with someone else. And then I would get back with that. Yeah, it was not a good <laughs> type of relationship thing. So technically, I've never cheated on anyone. But, you know, in reality, that's cheating. <laughs> now, how long did you did you start dating right away after you got this diagnosis? Did mm. you wait a while? Um, so what I did was with the partner that I kept going back and forth to, so she at the point in time had just assumed that she had it. We had been having sex unprotected for, at that point, probably three years. And so we just continued with business as usual. Um, the relationship was not, you know, really working out. And I know that I had an instance where someone new came into the picture. And once I disclosed to her, I, uh, she, I was met with oh, I know someone close to me who has it. So there was a lot more compassion and empathy there and she was willing to move forward. So we dated for a while and ended up ending the relationship, perhaps for herpes, perhaps not for herpes. Like it's kind of, it's up in the air about what caused the relationship to end. But uh, those were my two relationships after that. And then once those ended, that's really when dating started so probably three years after my diagnosis was when i actually started dating as opposed to just going back down uh the list of past partners who had already known about my status and were accepting of it already okay have you ever knowingly given somebody herpes like has anybody after the fact told you that they got it from you yeah, so uh, there were a couple of instances where I did not disclose to partners. And when I started this podcast, interviewing people with herpes about their experience and then putting my face out there saying, hey, everybody disclose, I had to make some very uncomfortable text messages. <laughs> Let me, yeah, it was text messages. So I sent the text to past partners and I let them know, hey, I'm going to be doing this thing. You know, I just want you to know. And then uh, with other people, it was like, hey, I didn't tell you I had herpes and I feel very shitty about it. I would feel very terrible about it if I passed it on to you. So if you have it, I might have given it to you. And that was kind of the response. So they responded back and they're like, well, you didn't you didn't give me herpes. Like, I'm I'm fine. I didn't get it. And so there was just a sense of overwhelming relief from that because I made these excuses in my head about why it was okay not to, one of which was just like being intoxicated out of my mind or super high. Um, and the other one was just, well, they didn't ask, so I didn't lie. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the, you know, we talk about patterns, right? I would break up with my girlfriend and then have sex with someone else and get back with my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend at the time 
and it wouldn't be cheating. Like I would have a clear conscience. So the way that I would find a way to rationalize my rational lies, ooh, that's good. <laughs> it was one of my patterns that kind of came to the surface after I got my herpes diagnosis. How has disclosing your status been? Um, early on, it was a rough process. Um, I remember one of my first disclosures was on Tinder, someone I was messaging with consistently too. Like we had very good conversation and she had mentioned to me that she had like really bad asthma. And I took that as an opportunity to go, well, yeah, you know, we all have our health conditions. It was like that time I found out when I had herpes, ha ha. And that was the last I heard from her. <laughs> she didn't even say anything back to it. So that was it for that interaction. Um, I would really avoid having to disclose. So I was, um, I lived in Houston for three years, Houston, Texas, and I was making more money than I ever had. I had the most, second most active social life than I've ever had throughout my entire life. Um, I was always doing stuff. There was always stuff going on and I would always meet a lot of people. Like people would even, you know, start conversations with me or I'd start conversations that we'd be uh, like even with women who would find me attractive. I'd find attractive. We'd engage in these conversations and then they wouldn't go anywhere. I would essentially self-sabotage myself out of putting myself in the position to where I would have to disclose because I didn't want to have to have that conversation. I didn't want to ruin my social circle, my social life by someone in it finding out that I had herpes. So I would even self-sabotage in that way to where friends would ask me, hey, why aren't you making a move with so-and-so? Like clearly this person likes you like, and you think she's hot. So why is nothing happening? I just be like, ha ha, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. and just mumble something and <laughs> leave it at that. So there was a lot of avoidance in regards to disclosure until it, it gets to a certain point where you can only jack off so many times, you know, before it's like, hey, I, I need to have sex. So it came like to a crossroads. All right, do I want to keep doing this? Or I want to keep being upset about it or do I want to like try and see what could happen? So um, I did get on dating sites and I started communicating again with people and just disclosing in conversation and it was fine. And I, it took for me to offset the thoughts that I had about myself for before disclosing. Uh, in order to challenge that with what was happening in reality, which in reality, people were just like, oh, okay, well, with herpes, this is what has to happen, right? So people were generally more knowledgeable about herpes than I was willing to give them credit for. And I had sexual partners, we wore condoms, uh, we communicated about our sexual health, STI status. Um, if I were to feel like an outbreak was coming along, I just wouldn't have sex. Like it was as simple as that. So when I'm at highest risk, there's always a chance of passing it on to a person. All we can do is be mindful of our bodies, know our bodies and take care of ourselves, take care of our partners by being able to say, hey, probably not tonight, but I could do that other thing that you like and we can be cool, you know, that way. Like this is an option for us. So. Um, dating really changed for me probably around the time, right before I started the podcast, what happened was I found that there were online dating sites for people with herpes. Where this was for the first three years, I have no idea. I don't think I was ready to find it. I didn't look for it, but let me tell you, 
this was a game changer for me because not only did it allow for me to be in a space where my fear of rejection for disclosure was just completely removed from it, but it was also a space where I, there, it was low risk. Like it was low risk to be myself. And so in this space of online communities where people are living with herpes, people are, you know, you don't have to think about it as a bad thing because all of us have it. Like the jokes are there. Like we make very blatant jokes about it. And it's like in a funny way, it's fun. It's uplifting and lighthearted. Um, and there's just like a lot of flirting and just being playful going on. So I met a few, I met a few women. Um, the only thing about it was that everyone was so far away. But what's cool about it is that I got to travel. I got to be in love for the weekend several times. And that was a very good experience for me to have because I now had like this comparison of who I am when herpes is taken out of the equation versus who I am when herpes is in the equation. And one of the things that I found to be true is that dating with herpes is just like dating, period. Herpes decide. Like whether herpes is in the picture or not in the picture, you're still going to deal with people ghosting. You're going to deal with people being incompatible. You're going to deal with potentially, you know, someone having stronger feelings than the other person and relationships ending or relationships getting to a point where they're challenged. And people can absolutely fall in love either way. You know, perhaps herpes is the thing that pulls you away from the toxic partners that you perhaps have always gone for and allow for you to be like, you know what, I'm not gonna, this person isn't worth it. This person is not worth me disclosing to, or I recognize my worth and I'm not gonna give them the opportunity to reject me because of my status. And like, when you are able and willing to walk away from that, you walk into the space of being able to find your people. And the way I see it, like you get one of three responses when you disclose your status to someone, me too, tell me more, or just a flat out no. So the odds are in your favor. Two thirds of the time you get not rejection. I don't want to say like every time a person's like, tell me more that it just instantly means that they're going to want to move forward in the way that you're hoping for, but it's more likely that you'll get a desired outcome than not. And in our heads, we make it like nobody wants herpes. But then when you say that that way, what you do is demean your identity, your value as a person to the point where herpes has a precedence over you. Herpes is more important than you are, is essentially what you're saying when you tell yourself that no one wants to date you because you have herpes. What do you have for tips for disclosing your status? You gotta be comfortable with yourself around your status. Uh, it's very important that you do so in a way that resonates with you, that aligns with your identity and what you believe about yourself, because you will project that onto a partner that you're disclosing to. So let's say, you know, you and I met and let's say we, most people are meeting online. So we meet, we're engaging in conversations. One way that I would disclose with me being, uh, this is my full-time work at this point. Like when you Google Courtney Brame, herpes is going to come up. So I have to tell you very soon, like maybe even before we meet, like, hey, listen, I have herpes and I talk about it. You cool with that? So it can be something as simple as that, or it could be, you know, hey, 
before you fall madly in love with me like I know you're going to do because I'm so awesome and you're awesome and we just we, we click. I want to give you a choice that wasn't given to me. I was diagnosed with herpes about eight years ago and I got it from I don't know who uh, my most recent partners around that time. I asked them. Everyone said no. So here's how I've dealt with it over the last eight years. Here's what it means for me. Here's what it means for you. Uh, it just means that, you know, like with any other virus, you know, take care of yourself, practice good hygiene, and we'll be as safe as possible. There's always a risk associated with it. Um, but like I said, I want to give you the choice that wasn't given to me. And then also be sure to include, you know, what about you? What's your status? Do you know yours? When's the last time you were tested? What were you tested for? Have you ever had an SCI? How'd you handle it before? Have you ever been disclosed to? Like we oftentimes end the conversation at disclosing. I say we being people who have genital herpes. We disclose that we have herpes and then we just like, we're shocked with ourselves for having done it. And we're awaiting the other person's approval or rejection for us having disclosed our status. Yeah, so you would say that uh, disclosing to a partner probably would not be ideal to tell them, hey, so I got something to tell you, my sex life is over and I have herpes. I don't wanna be around that kind of negativity. <laughs> like if you tell me, especially in that tone, like no one's ever gonna want me because also you welcome in like an abuser, like you're that, whoever you're disclosing to that way who moves forward and they're probably licking their chops at you for that because you are presenting yourself as someone who has an insecurity rather than a vulnerability. So when you say, listen, I, you know, this is something that I've been insecure about, I'm aware of it, I have herpes and not everybody wants that. So I've dealt with rejection in the past, I've dealt with acceptance in the past, but I wanna make sure that you know this. When you say it that way, that has a power behind it that Oh my God, I have herpes and no one's gonna want me. You're not gonna wanna have sex with me. I don't wanna be around a person who feels this way about themselves because we're constantly transmitting, transferring and receiving the emotions of other people just by being in their presence. And so if you're genuinely a negative person or this is how you choose to respond to your diagnosis, perhaps you should not be dating yet until you get to a better place about it. So my initial advice is for people to understand how they feel about it. You can feel bad about it. That's okay. Understand that you feel bad about it. Someone who feels bad about it and is able to communicate that they're aware that they feel bad about it is on the same level as someone who has accepted it. They're just like, hey, you know, it's just part of my life. I take a pill every day to manage the symptoms and it is what it is. Like those responses to me both speak to a level of acceptance. Whereas someone who may be crying still or having not dealt with the emotions that come with it, that's more of an avoidant type of thing. Because, you know, who's to say like, we can go on a date and we're having a fantastic time, everything's good. And then you hit me with that, like you've been, I feel used to a degree because you wanna come out and have this good time and then you're dealing with this thing inside of you that you're just putting off. You should have 
done yourself the service of at least exploring for yourself what this means and trying to process it perhaps with a mental mental health professional or with support groups whatever resources you have available to you and then you begin to bring people in then you begin to date and i think that that's really how it needs to be done yeah that's really good that's really good do you have any good resources for helping people disclosing i think it depends on how you are as the person I'm not big on statistics. I'm not big on uh, the data. Uh, if you're someone who's on Instagram, I strongly recommend that you follow at Sex Education. So it's S-E-X-E-L-D-U-C-A-T-I-O-N on Instagram. She posts a ton of the research behind HSV and uh, transmission rates and things about the stigma on top of like relationship and boundary uh, related content. Um, but what you'll get from me is that in terms of disclosure, episode 99 of something positive for positive people is called integrative disclosure. I interviewed Dr. Evelyn Decker, who was the executive director of Sex Positive Portland, which is an organization that uh, facilitates uh, things like play parties, uh, talks about consent, and all of the aspects of sex positivity and education. She's also a doctor, <laughs> right? So our conversation was essentially about herpes, how common it is, how tricky the virus is, and then we got into um, her STARS talk, which is also a TED talk. So STARS, sexual health, turn-ons, avoids, relationship intention, and then safety. That's what STAR stands for. You can, I, when I heard this, I was like, oh my God, I can rearrange those letters to where we can put sexual health at the end to decide if this is someone that we even want to disclose to. So now it becomes, oh girl, what, what turns you on? Like, what are, what are things you want to stay away from? Like, do you like spit? Do you like to be choked? Do you like to use toys? And we get into that stage to find out, okay, we are sexually compatible. All right, now, what's your intention with me? What, what's my intention with you? Is this gonna be something where we're gonna be in a long-term relationship? Are we working towards something? Is this casual? Are we just hooking up? How long do we expect this to last? What's the reality here? and you find out that you know you're both in line with just having fun right okay so now it becomes a matter of you know you've talked about turn-ons you've talked about avoids uh now uh and then relationship intention and now we get to safety okay well you want to come meet up at my place how about you turn your location on with a friend just so that you know you feel some added level of safety um let me know when you're in the uber check in with me so that you know you feel safe and i'm happy to like let people know that you're coming over here whatever and when you feel that sense of safety with the partner perhaps now you can disclose so obviously not when you're in the uber ride over you know have the conversation but i'm just using that as an example of safety now you know that you're in alignment with four of the five letters now let's talk about our sexual health. Okay, hey, I want to move forward with you. We appear to be really in line. We really like each other. Like you excite me, turn me on. I find you attractive. There's chemistry. Now 
Let's talk about our sexual health. Let's talk about boundaries in the bedroom. Let's talk about this kind of thing. When were you last tested? What were you tested for? And same thing with me. Like now I'm gonna share with you that I was last tested for chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, uh, trick, and I tested positive for chlamydia. This was three weeks ago. I got treated. I couldn't have sex for two weeks. Now I'm done with my antibiotics. I can be sexually active again. And I also tested positive for HSV2. How about you? Simple as that. Um, it seems a lot more complex than that, but when you listen to the episode, like it gives you sort of a blueprint for the fact that disclosing our status is one piece of this much larger puzzle around discussing around sexual communication period that is wonderful i'm gonna have to go listen to that like tonight i love it now one thing i really wanted to address in this episode is the stigma of stds and stis we live in kind of this culture of shame and when it comes to stis i know you don't like statistics but the reality is that one in two will have an sti by the age of 25 and yes, I got that from um, sex el education. Um, yeah, I just call it sex education or sex education with the L in the middle. That's the best way I can describe it. So I got that from her. So one in two will have an STI by the age of 25. So if you're having sex, you're likely going to acquire some type of STI at some point. What are your thoughts on the stigmas the stigma behind STIs and dealing with that. My thoughts on the stigma are that the stigma is upheld by these pillars. Uh, one pillar being people who have STIs, another, the people who deliver STIs, the media, our first exposure to STIs, which is often sex education, and then at home in our communities, how sex is talked about. So these pillars, for me, in my experience, have been the major upholders of stigma. Now, of course, there's other things that people can throw in there, um, but just for the sake of brevity and being able to cover all of these, these are the five that I'm going with. So we start with people with STIs. These are the people who understand the reality of living with whatever condition it is. Uh, let's talk about herpes, you know, for the sake of the conversation here. People with herpes have their lived experiences. We have our lived experiences. I'm part of that community myself. And the shame and stigma of what people or what we think people think of us or will think of us because of our diagnosis keeps us from putting our experiences out there so that we can get better treatment, so that we can perhaps get a cure, perhaps uh, a vaccine. But the risk to reward ratio is not there enough for us to want to come forward as a community and say, we need this, give it to us. With HIV, that had to happen because people were dying and people were extending or they were reaching out for support. They had allies, they had advocacy in their favor because people were dying and medication had to be demanded, right? So we don't have that. We don't have that for ourselves in order to put our real realities, our stories out there for people to understand, oh, you got herpes and you were married and that's the only person that you had sex with? Oh, they cheated on you. 
or you were sexually assaulted and got herpes. None of that even makes it into conversation about STDs and STIs. What makes it to the conversation when someone's positive is, ah, you got herpes, ah, you shouldn't have been messing with that dirty person. These are the kinds of things that are said to people who have STIs. I talk about our initial point of contact with uh, our diagnosis. So healthcare providers, there is a direct connection and intersection, if you will, between sexual health and mental health. Stigma resides right there at that intersection. So when a person receives their STI diagnosis, oftentimes our identity is so interconnected with our sexuality that an STD diagnosis just completely shatters that shit and we're left to pick up the pieces. We don't know how to do that. We don't know what that looks like because we don't have examples of what it means to put the pieces back together. We think our sex lives are over. We think no one's gonna ever love us. We're gonna think we can't have children. All of these kinds of things come into our mind. And oftentimes where we go and receive our diagnosis, they need to get us out of the door so that they can serve the next patient. So they don't have time to sit with us and deal with the breakdown that we may be having or all of the questions that we have. And we don't even know what questions we have because we're in, we're receiving a trauma and we don't know how to respond to this. So we're, whatever you tell me is what I'm gonna do. So here, you give me these statistics, I'm gonna just read these statistics and then walk out of there do whatever it is I'm going to do, maybe do my research, Googling, or I'm just going to cry. Whatever needs to happen is going to happen. Media, self-explanatory. Media is responsible for communicating the messages to the masses. And again, because the people who have herpes are not being represented in the media, the media is just going off of what's out there. And typically people are saying that people with herpes, it's just funny. Herpes can be made fun of because no one's dying from it on the surface. Now, we don't have to get into this, but people with herpes have in fact expressed or attempted suicide and expressed suicidal thoughts. So while it may not be herpes that kills someone, the thing that herpes has brought to the surface, that pattern that's probably always been there in a person could lead a person into depression and lead them to kill themselves. So media with this consistent messaging around herpes being a joke and being such a major source of information not communicating accurate, consistent and uh, consistent and just true information about the virus, not only because they don't have access to it, but because we're quiet about it and being able to say, hey, here's what it's really like. One of the other factors is sex education. So our sex education is often wear condoms and don't have sex till you're married and you won't get an STD. It's I'm going to scare you out of getting an STD. What happens when you get an STD? What happens when you have symptoms? What happens when you failed at prevention efforts? Now what, right? And then we also don't include that sex education is inclusive of consent, body autonomy, relationships and boundaries, relationships to our own bodies, and um, just all of the things that can, all of the good that comes with sex education because the word sex is there. So what if what would happen if we change it to mental education, right? And sexuality has to be a piece of that because majority of it is relationship management, being able to identify and protect yourself from abuse with boundaries. So kids aren't learning these things. So we grow up thinking, all right, well, wear condom and have sex when I'm married. 
realistically, you're not going to have wait until marriage to have sex more often than not. And somebody going eventually, you know, when you the first time you don't use a condom, <laughs> like you, it's going to be hard to go back from that. So where's the communication elements? Where's the get tested, regardless if this is your first time or their first time, regardless if you're in a monogamous relationship, it's important to know what your status is and understand the importance of that and all of the things that encompass that as well. And then the communities and home are the same. If your household and your community are uncomfortable talking about sex, where are you gonna get your sex ed from? Where are you gonna learn about sex from? You're gonna learn it from media, which is inaccurate and inconsistent and just you know not really, really reflective of what that means or what it means to have a sexual encounter. We see on the surface, we see two people that built this tension throughout the 90 minutes of this TV show or uh, <laughs> this movie that we're watching and we watch them lock eyes, they start kissing and the next thing you know, they're rolling bodies together. Where's the conversation about consent? Where's the condom? Where's the testing? Where's the conversation about what's about to happen next? What if someone's pregnant, right? All of these pieces, where did, where does this person get off? You just hear a heavy gasp and then they roll off of each other. Like these are the kinds of things that we don't get the behind the scenes look at. I mean, even if we're watching porn, like what we're learning from sex ed or what we're learning about sex through porn isn't even often reflective of reality. We see what looks good on the surface. And so the conversations that need to be had, the testing that needs to be done, the boundaries that need to be discussed, these are things that are missing and need to be included in sex ed, need to be included when uh, in, in our household conversations as well, because otherwise we're getting this inconsistent and inaccurate messaging from out there rather than within our own communities. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's so true though, that like TV shows and movies, you know, you can talk about the orgasm gap and things like that. You're not seeing, you're not seeing the whole side of the story. I have a lot of providers that actually listen to this podcast and hopefully, you know, a lot of people interested in sexual health education are able to get to my podcast and your podcast. But as a provider, what kind of tips would you give somebody like me to help tell somebody about a new diagnosis? I love this question preparation with resources. Uh, I was talking to Vibrant Health today and I interviewed them. They're a nonprofit organization here in St. Louis that serves the HIV community. And one of the things that I love about their services, I went and I got tested and the person who tested me was very, uh, it, was, it was very customer service driven. I have HSV2, they didn't test me for herpes, they test me for HIV, chlamydia and gonorrhea. And um, I had to pee in a cup, answer a bunch of questions and do the swab, pee in a cup. Um, and that was it. Right. So one thing that stood out to me was representation. Uh, they have people there who offer this. Um, they offer like this. There's, there's some kind of comfort that comes from being served by someone who kind of looks like you or kind of lives a similar lifestyle. So for myself, I identify as non-monogamous and the person who I was speaking to was very well versed in non-monogamous language. So we were able to have that kind of rapport and language back and forth with one another 
through the testing process, I felt very safe. I felt comfortable uh, disclosing the number of partners that I had, um, who I had sex with. Like, for instance, if you have sex with drug users, sex workers, or men, uh, or for me, having sex, being a man who has sex with men, I mean, uh, these were all questions that they asked, and I was comfortable with answering these kinds of questions. So as far as delivering a positive diagnosis goes, it's a matter of preparation, uh, understanding if there are any biases that you may have as a provider against someone who may be a part of the LGBT community, who may have a more non-traditional uh, relationship style, who may be, you know, you have like a thing against women and you're a man, or you have some shame against women who are seemingly more attractive than you, or if someone looks like someone that you just don't like, being able to check those biases prior to going in and delivering this diagnosis. So like on a universal level, I think that having someone deliver the diagnosis who's been through it themselves has been one of the things that has been beyond supportive for the people who have been diagnosed that I've spoken with. Um, so like being able to provide the service or being able to deliver the diagnosis and actually be able to empathize without, you know, you don't have to disclose your own status. I know that that has been the most helpful thing to people who've heard from their provider, hey, I have this, I know exactly what you're going through. If you wanna talk, here's some resources, like I can connect you to whatever it is that you need, I got you. Hearing that alone from someone who has it, especially because at the point of your diagnosis, you hear how common it is. You see these statistics, but I don't know anybody else. I'm the only person I know with this. So when you tell me that, it just reinforces my loneliness. So I think that the statistics don't really help. Um, I think that they just kind of add on to the layer of shame that a person may be experiencing. What does help, though, is letting them know where to find the people who also have them. So the resources for people who have HSV, the communities that are out there, the social groups, support groups, all of this is out there. It's just extremely challenging to find because of the stigma and because we, as people with herpes, are in fact afraid of putting ourselves out there to be found because of the stigma, because we don't want people to know and find out and somehow use this against us and for us to be discriminated against. So my main thing for providers is to be able to go into it with resources and without bias. Bring resources and leave biases out of there. I love that. I'm going to have to put together a little like pamphlet for my patients with like Instagram places to follow, podcasts, your podcast, things like that. Because I think that stuff is so important when you get a diagnosis. Because you do, I've, I've had so many patients who once I give them that diagnosis, they feel very alone. They feel very lost. And they just don't know how to process that information. And if they had, you know, some other people that they could talk to who relate, I think that would really be beneficial. Yeah, definitely helpful. And that's been one of the most healing things. Like I'm not a therapist, I'm not a mental health professional, but people often come to me really just wanting to be seen. Like the fact that I represent, like I'm a black male and the messages that I get from even from black people in general 
uh, are often powerful because the representation allows for them to be seen and to see someone who can relate based on uh, cultural similarities and experiences. Like I'll talk to people and be like, oh, you know how it is. And we like saying, you know how it is. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, you know. So that relatability makes such a difference because when you Google herpes or people with herpes, primarily what you're gonna see is cisgendered, maybe not all the way straight white women who talk about herpes in an open way. And what that does is for people who may not be cisgendered, not all the way straight white women, reinforce this messaging that isn't theirs. So to see someone like that openly say, I have herpes and I'm living my best life, you know, as someone who's looking at that from a person who doesn't look like me, I may wish that I were a cisgendered, white, not all the way straight woman because they're living their best life and I'm not. And it's just, it's reinforcing to not have that kind of representation. So. Well, when I, a couple episodes before this episode, I had mentioned about how herpes is actually more common in the black community. And so it's interesting that you point out that everything talks about cis white women. Well, the reality is like, that's not actually who carries this diagnosis more often. Poor, poor representation. Yeah. And um, one of the statistics that I saw was one in two black women have herpes and you know, that, that kind of shocked me because I'm not interviewing a lot of Black women. I'm not interviewing a lot of Black people. Nine times out of 10, these Black women who have HSV did not give it to themselves, nor did they get it from a woman because oftentimes like uh, the, the transmission from uh, penis to vul- vagina, vulva, that transmission rate is high. I don't know if there's much information on uh, vulva to vulva contact transmission rates, but I imagine it's not very high. The black women that I speak to behind the scenes are often like, yeah, I got it from this dude who dot, dot, dot. And the representation isn't there for added layers, you know, like being black is one thing, being a black man or black woman is another thing, being a black man or woman who also has an SCI, like that we we're looking at a triple compounded trauma there. So it's very challenging for someone to rise up from that. Like think about like springs getting pushed down. There's all this pressure just dying to release. And you know, you keep pushing and keep pressing down on that and you'll eventually just like damage the spring. So there has to come a point where we're able to, you know, release these aspects of the traumatization and be able to heal from this because that's the only way that we're going to be able to do so. Uh, So I hope that by me putting my healing on display along with my face and represent the communities that I represent, people are able to see me and go, okay, it's safe. Okay. It's, it's safer for me to do this now than it was before I recognized this person because we're, we're struggling, like we're, we're struggling with it. We're not talking about it. And minority groups generally are more impacted by things like this in general because of uh, various circumstances, poverty, economical, social economical status, uh, location, access to resources, limited education. So we, we do need this. I, I feel that it's been validated for me more lately how important it is 
that my presence is out here and that I continue to uplift the voices that generally don't uh, get any representation. So that's what I'm hoping to do. And I hope that that's being accomplished and that people are being helped and served from the resources that I aim to provide. I would say your resources are definitely helping people. I, I listened and I thought it was really, really helpful um, information. So now if you could tell somebody who was newly diagnosed with any STD, what would you tell them? Listen, I didn't have more sex with an STD than I had before I got it. Like, I, I think that that's what people want to know. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that we say no one's going to want to be with me. Really, what we think is no one's going to want to have sex with me, depending on where you are in life. Let me say that. So one of the most common things uh, for people in their 20s, for instance, that's the concern. The concern is on the surface, I'm not going to have kids. No one's going to love me. No one's going to be with me. But when you get down to the root of it, it's my sex life is over. Like I was just getting started. I thought I was about to have all these experiences. And then when you drill it down, you come to find out like, oh, that's really what it is. Like, I think I'm not going to have sex. No, sex just looks different. And it's better because now it involves communication that did not need to take place before in your mind. So for me, my general sex conversation was, are you on birth control? Do we need to wear this condom? Do I need this condom? Right. And that was what it was like. I would always wear condoms up until I found out I didn't always have to wear condoms. So when somebody was on birth control, I was like, what? <laughs> and that became the, the priority at that point was just birth control. Birth control was the priority. Uh, not STIs, because at that point it was like, oh, the first time I have sex without a condom and I don't get an STI, it's like, oh, I've been lied to all this time. So it is what it is. And so, you know, here I am now with herpes, having had chlamydia, and I am still having more sex and better sex than I ever had due to the communication that takes place. Like when you can, when you can open up and have like trusting conversation with someone, get tested um, and be able to articulate what it is that you want and need with one another, then you open up the door for greater, deeper intimacy and more fun, frankly. Yeah, and I think too, you know, maybe more communication that goes into this, you actually build better relationships. You do, you definitely do. Um, because how you have sex is how you do life. I mean, when we talk about our boundaries, we talk about communication, like me as a cisgendered heterosexual male, I would say with queer tendencies, cause like hetero queer doesn't fit, queer doesn't fit, but like I don't have like your regular cisgendered heterosexual type of sex, if that makes sense. Uh, like having sex toys, for instance, is not something that most straight dudes do, right? So whenever I'm engaging with a new partner, let's say it's a cisgendered heterosexual woman, right? When I ask things like, hey, what do you like? You know, it's like, like their heads explode <laughs> uh, because no one's asked that before. Um, when I talk about testing, when I ask, hey, you know, when were you last tested? Oh, I don't know, like a year ago all right, well, before we have sex, let's make sure that we, let's get that done. I got tested three months ago and here's my status. Like I can go get tested again before we have sex. And again, heads explode. 
you know, or when it comes down to like, well, let's, let's make tonight about you. Like, what do you want? What do you need? What gets you off? Like having conversations about sex have been super uncomfortable for some of my sexual partners since I've come into this space. And it's really interesting to see like how good we can be at sex, but how terrible we can be at talking about it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. I want to know where can the listeners find you at? Yeah, so I am most active on Instagram at H on my chest, which is H-O-N-M-Y-C-H-E-S-T. You can also visit www.spfpp.org if you want to check out more about the organization. If you want to listen to the podcast, it's on the website and it's also available on all podcast players iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts. And like I said, it's also on the website. Um, I mentioned that we are raising money to get people therapy who are dealing with their herpes diagnosis. So if you want to help us with presenting grant opportunities, funding opportunities, if you want to just make a donation, you can do that through the website on the homepage, scroll down a little bit and there's options to donate. Um, Or you can just hit me up if you have media opportunities or if you are someone who has HSV and you want to share your story, feel free to reach out through the uh, contact form or shoot me an email. I'm just Courtney at SPFPP.org. Beautiful. Are there any last resources you'd like to share? Yeah, so uh, for women who are living with HSV, there's an online support community uh, via Instagram. This is where she mainly operates. It's positive.results.us. So Positive Results is led by Ray, and Ray is the best. Uh, She puts together these, I don't know if they're weekly or if they're like monthly uh, support groups for women with HSV. So this is a good way for you to find sisterhood. You can find like just what it's like to have a community of women living with HSV in a virtual world. They had uh, like a a summit uh, maybe a few weeks ago and I heard nothing but good things about it from the people who attended. They thought that Ray was a sweetheart and uh, safe.slut was there as well. Someone who's HSV positive talks about it openly and playfully and also is like very encouraging for women to still continue to explore their sexuality. Um, I've already mentioned sex education with an L in the middle. She's another great resource for any HSV related content. Um, And yeah, those are like the main ones that I recommend to people. And if you're someone who wants to get in contact with like any of the support groups that are out there for people living with herpes, or if you want to be a part of the communities, or if you need help finding like uh, dating sites or social groups for dating for people with herpes, then feel free to reach out, contact me, let me know. And I can do what I, I see what I can do to get you connected to somewhere in your area or just in relation to what it is that you're looking for. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been super informational. If you haven't checked out something positive for positive people, go do so. Thanks again. You are more than welcome. And thank you so much for extending your platform to have this conversation. Like, I very much appreciate you reaching out to me to talk about this. Thank you, Jordan. You're so welcome. This podcast is sponsored by Pure Romance by Jordan Jones, offering top bath and beauty products and relationship enhancement items. Check out the link in the bio to start shopping today. Thank you for joining today and continuing to bring awareness to women's health. 
If you love the show, please subscribe so you never miss another episode and leave a review for others to see. If you want to see me on the daily, you can check out my bio for links to all my pages. Be sure to share this episode with your girlfriends. Thanks again and see you next episode.